Welcome to Politics on the Prairies, a podcast about politics in Western Canada. I'm your host, Ryan Catello, and I'm tired of the idea that politics should be off-limits. Also, my friends are tired of me talking politics at parties, so I decided to start a podcast where I interview politicians, entrepreneurs, and anyone else with something to say. The goal is to create a dialogue across parties and hopefully get people thinking about who they're voting for and why it's important. There may even be some good old-fashioned debate. If you want to be part of the conversation, join us on Politics on the Prairies. Hey everyone, I'm here with Mark Bigland Pritchard. Mark's got a background in applied physics, his PhD analyzed moisture and heat flows through straw bale walls, and he worked for many years as a consultant and educator in clean energy and green building. He's been very vocal over several years about the need to address the climate crisis, and he campaigns with Climate Justice Saskatoon. His current paid work, however, is in support of private refugee sponsorship with Mennonite Central Committee. Mark, thanks for coming by. Thank you, Ryan. Um, so I prepared a couple questions. I trust you had a little bit of time to look over them. Sure. There's not going to yep. be generally yep. any surprises about what we talk about today. Um, first thing I want to ask you, Mark, is um, well, wh- where are you from? Uh, wh- where did you originate uh, and how did you get to Saskatoon? <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, I'm, I grew up in, in England. Yeah. Um, most of my childhood was in Bristol. Um, which is a city of about half a million, um, historic port, and actually today, very progressive city, a city which um, was the first to declare a climate emergency um, and is working hard to actually put some flesh on that so that there actually is a plan to become carbon neutral by 2030. Mm. So it's a city that's going places, but I haven't lived there since um, 05, and a lot of those exciting things have happened since 05. Uh, <laughs> In that city? <coughs> yeah. Oh, so you have kind of looked at so, it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I moved to Canada because my wife's Canadian. She wanted to get back and, and uh, see her father before he died and um, be with her sister for a bit. And um, so we've been here for, how long have we been here? Nearly 15 years. And then so. you stayed, I, I suppose, after uh, your, your father-in-law passed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we... We moved. We you you moved. Know, we, and, we officially you, immigrated. I got I got my permanent residency. I got my citizenship. You intended on doing that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> I know you're, you're as you said you're involved in climate justice Saskatoon. Uh, you have a background, um, you know, raising awareness for the climate crisis. Uh, on a scale of one to ten, how dire is the crime, climate crisis at this point? So, with one being it's no problem and everyone's overreacting. Uh, and 10 being apocalyptic conditions, much like you see in, say, Australia right now. Yeah, and I mean, that's... In a sense, it's a a matter of what do we do now. Right. Um, And one of the problems that we have here is that there's a long fuse, that, you know, what we do today won't actually have effect until maybe a decade or two. Yeah. Uh, So, obviously, what we are doing today of shoving far too much CO2 into the atmosphere... Uh, is having an effect 10, 20 years down the line, which we can't do anything about now. Mm. Um, what we can do something about is the future emissions. Um, and we need... There is urgency about that. You know, we have basically 10 years in which to, to turn the curve the other way. You know, at the moment, emissions are going up still. Uh, we need to turn them down and turn them down quite dramatically. So... Um, my simple answer would be 10. Yeah. But <laughs> right. 
that has to be understood as the emergency that we are creating now for some time in the future, as opposed to what's happening now. And I mean, it feels like an appalling emergency in Australia and in Indonesia and in those parts of Africa which have been suffering from severe drought and then serious floods and from and in India where they've been having droughts and heat waves and you know all sorts of places um so it's an emergency for all those people mm-hmm. uh climate change is is killing large numbers of people every year worldwide not in Saskatchewan um but we do need to remember that Saskatchewan isn't the world right so what we're doing it's an emergency because what we're doing now is actually killing people 10 years from now. We just don't yeah. see it. Yeah. That's really well put. I've never been yeah. put that way. Um, so do you think our version of democracy then, uh, which includes a separation here in Canada, which includes a separation of uh, provincial and federal powers, um, has been a hindrance to effective action on climate change? I think... Um, there, more? Yeah. There are politicians who have been playing that game. So, you know, we have the appeals against the carbon tax by Saskatchewan and um, Ontario and now by Alberta, um, which, you know, I have every confidence that that the Supreme Court will say, no, this actually is legal. Right. This, you know, the federal government is within its rights to to fight this. So so what's happening there is um, the provinces are taking the federal government to the Supreme Court Yes. In order to yeah. appeal yeah. the yeah. carbon tax. Yeah. It's so it's, it's already gone through the provincial courts, and the provincial courts have said, no, this is legal. This is legal. Uh, so the appeal has gone to the, uh, the federal Supreme Court. Okay. Um, so, you know, yes, political games are being played there yeah. uh, by jurisdictions which you know they're not really that interested in the rights of provinces they're interested in blocking carbon tax Mm. for the benefit of the interests that they are there to represent really you know you know their their support base in terms of finance and in terms of who their friends are yeah (laughs) right i think we can just go right there yeah (laughs) yeah um, and so do you think that's also happened on the federal level? I mean, we're seeing it mostly on the provincial level right now. But has that also happened on the federal preceding this, this current stage? That Was there a time when most of the provinces seemed to be on board with the climate, with the carbon tax, and, and now it's gone the other way? Or? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, when the carbon tax first came in, you know, it, was, it was essentially everyone but Saskatchewan was, was on board. Mm. Um, for agriculture purposes, probably. for well, for all sorts of things, but yeah, um, Manitoba had had a a bit of a wobble, but then came on board. Okay. Um, but then Ford was elected in Ontario and started doing all sorts of destructive things. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which was to come out against the carbon tax, but probably not the most destructive thing he did. Right. Um, and subsequently, we had um, conservatives elected in Alberta and in New Brunswick, who've you know also taken this position against carbon tax. So it's there's become this this sort of you know right wing conservative alliance against the carbon tax. Mm-hmm. Now New Brunswick have have essentially dropped out of that because they can see which way the the electoral logic is going now. Mm-hmm. Um, that. You know, they they did didn't do very well in the federal election, 
Ontario, I've seen suggestions that they're going to have to rethink simply because Ford's ratings are, are so appalling now. Um, but so it's it's become this, you know, what we saw in the federal election mm. of um, this this very much sort of the the Midwest against everybody else, um, with you know basically Jason Kenney leading the, ch- the charge for for Alberta and Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. Probably with support from you know the eastern half of BC and the western half of Manitoba, um, and some people in Ontario, obviously. But uh, it's it's worrying. It's worrying that that we have become so tribal, almost. I mean, right. I'm not sure tribal is, is is a bad thing necessarily, but um, but so caught up in that sort of geographical thing that somehow our allegiance here is to oil rather than to the planet mm-hmm. uh, that's that's very worrying um, but yeah going back to what you're saying earlier about you know is the federal government playing these these plants you know um, this federal government has gone further than any previous federal government in pursuing climate action it's going nowhere near far enough though right and one of the ways that it's going nowhere far enough is you know, it's going to board a pipeline that will enable a vast increase in the amount of bitumen that's produced in Alberta, which you know means higher emissions for Alberta, but it also means much higher emissions when that stuff, having been upgraded and refined into usable petroleum products, gets burnt somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so... They're they're playing a double game, sort of sleight of hand, and they're playing that game against the BC mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, interestingly enough, the Alberta and Saskatchewan governments have been piling on and saying, "Look, you in BC don't have the right to challenge the the federal government over this," mm-hmm. while they are challenging the federal government over the carbon tax. So mm-hmm. it's there's a lot of so almost- people making arguments on the thing that they're you know, isn't really what they're interested in making the argument about. Right. <clears throat> right. They're just making it because there's an opposite, there's a team there as opposed to doing what is really in their own personal interest or what yeah. makes sense independently. Yeah. There's a team yeah. there, they can jump on the board and at least maybe they can they can score a okay. couple points in their direction sure. generally. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I think that's the tribalism yeah. you're getting at. Yeah. And we don't see this in some other countries that have, you know, a decentralized system you know right. germany the the lender have very substantial powers but they're all together in pursuing a climate policy right and those climate policies vary from place to place but they are all together mm. switzerland like likewise um so it's i think it's, it's a specifically canadian phenomenon that that we're seeing that we're seeing um you know what that might be might do some people listening to to get a bit of um a scoop on, on what the carbon tax is because I realize now uh, you and I understand it and know it I, I shouldn't say I completely understand it but I generally understand it would you want to give us like a 30 second or even an elevator pitch on what the carbon tax is and why implementing it now as a country will benefit us 5 to 10 years from now uh, in terms of and I can speak on that a bit too if you want uh, yeah. in terms of manufacturing base and, and thinking about these things before yeah. other countries sure. are sure um, yeah so I mean, carbon pricing of of one sort or another has yeah. been in the pipeline for a long time, and right. I mean, Scandinavian countries have been doing it since the eighties. Um, but the, so the way putting a, yeah. a price on carbon putting, produced yeah. commercially, 
or or on the individual level, right? Yeah, and it, it varies from place to place Who where it's done. Why? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the proposal, well, it's more than a proposal. It's, it's actually in place now. Yeah. Um, in Canada, is that where there hasn't been an equivalent carbon pricing system put in place already by the the provincial government, right. which there has been in Quebec and BC, right. then um, there is a tax imposed on um, all fossil fuels, essentially, um, which varies according to the, the, the level of emissions per unit of, of energy produced uh, from those fossil fuels. So, um, so that it, you know, it's fair among coal and oil and gas. Um, <clears throat> and that that's basically applies to individual consumers. Um, you know, it's not applied, it's not charged to the consumer is passed on to the consumer by the um, the gas station or the, um, the, the utility or, or, or whatever. Um, but then what they've also put in place is a rebate so that you actually get back, I think it's, it's now 90% of the money, except that for most people, actually they're getting back more than they would be paying. Because, you know, there's a few people who use an enormous amount of fossil fuels, mm -hmm. um, generally wealthy people. Right. Uh, so they will be losing out. Right. But, the mo but most of us will actually be financially gaining in this system. So someone who takes the bus, they have the option of taking the car, but they could take the bus for yeah. an extra 20 yeah. minutes on their morning, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. They'll see that back at the end of the year yeah. for their discipline. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's where... And I've heard this uh, multiple times, uh, you're explaining it really well, that the carbon tax actually does benefit those who are worse off in our, in our country yes. generally. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, generally. I mean, I think you have to be careful about that because there are some people who really don't have choices. Right. You know, people who are in rented accommodation, um, who have no particular, you know, who don't have a, a transport option other than walking or the bus. Mm. Um, how do they actually save energy? It's not clear. Right, yeah. I see. And I think there's a, a lot more that needs to be done for those people. Mm. Um, I would prefer to see a, a more redistributive approach to to the carbon tax than the one that's been implemented. But, but you know, it's as a good basic starting point. I yeah. think it's it's you know it's pretty sound. And it's hard to yeah. pass. It's hard. It's it's easy to oppose. Like you know, it's easy for the conservative government at the time. What we saw was they just they ran against that. Basically, yeah. they just said, yeah. we'll get rid of that. It'll be gone by January. And you know what? It could be argued that if uh, Justin Trudeau had put together a more uh, aggressive carbon tax, he might have lost the election. Possibly. Uh, and and Possibly. the carbon tax would yeah. have killed altogether, which would have yeah. been, now we're back to doing mm -hmm. nothing, right? But, I mean, the nice thing about this system is that, you know, most people are actually financially benefiting. When they realize that then the carbon tax can be increased and increased and increased to whatever level is needed in order to, to hit the targets. Um, because you know, the more it's increased, the more people will benefit, mm -hmm. mostly, apart from those very rich people who... <laughs> Insist yeah. on driving yeah. Yeah. everywhere, yeah. <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, that's a really, really good way of explaining that. I appreciate that. Um, now, I've heard that the carbon tax, uh, just to dispel a myth here, I've heard that the carbon tax doesn't apply to agriculture. Uh, is that true? It applies to 
the use of fossil fuels. Yeah. So, I mean, most of the emissions, the, most of greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture are not actually CO2. They're not actually from fuel. Um, they are from um, nitrous oxide and methane, um, which, you know, the nitrous oxide comes from breakdown of fertilisers and of natural nitrogen in the soil. The, the methane comes mostly from... Um, emissions from cattle at both ends. Yeah, uh, cow farts. Yeah, and methane. Yeah, and cow belches as well. And cow but, belches. Yeah. Um, so, the bulk of you know, I mean, when you look at the, the graph of uh, Saskatchewan's emissions, you see, you know, twenty-one percent is from agriculture. Well, most of that is actually not carbon dioxide. Um, okay. I think it's twenty-one percent. It may if be it's a little bit. It's, it's, it's somewhere around there. Um, some of it is, obviously, because they use tractors, they use the combines, you know, combines right. heavy, heavy machinery, um, grain drying, those sorts of things. Um, some of those things will actually be effectively exempted because, I mean, there's, there's some complexity in the system, which is mm-hmm. <laughs> probably too much to go into here. Right. Um, the grain drying thing, I think, is, is something that needs to be addressed. Because there was a need for a lot of that. I'm this, not familiar this winter. with that. Could you explain that? Um, well, when farmers have, have uh, harvested their grain, they put them in put in bins. Okay. They have to keep it dry. Now, if you've got a wet autumn, uh, it gets moist. Um, there's the risk of, of moulds growing on and so on. Mm. So you know they have to maintain warm airflow through it, which of course requires heating. Interesting. And I mean, this is just the way that it is with agriculture on the, on the large scale that it's, it's operating right. in Saskatchewan. Um, you know, small-scale small agriculture probably wouldn't have a problem. problem. Um, it's another one of the problems of yeah. being able to harvest more than you can use in that year. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah, and, you know, just... Which is necessary. Just I mean, the, a- the issue of, you know, there's only so much that you can get onto the, the train to Chicago or to the yeah. coast or wherever yeah. at one time. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, they end up having to ship it right the way through the winter. Right. Um, so, you know, it has to be maintained safe. And that's a really energy-intensive process. And it's, it's a moderately energy-intensive process. And, you know, I mean, it, it's a serious issue if yeah. you have, as we, as we had this year, uh, well, last year now, I guess, um, a damp autumn and a, a damp beginning of winter. Um, <clears throat> so... I mean, I think that's that's an area that, that does need to be looked at. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I have a, a particular view on how it should be looked at. But so, if a farmer set up solar panels, had a battery bank, and was able to power that process that way, could he avoid theoretically he she avoid the, the carbon tax? Yes. Um, yeah, and I mean the the solar drying technology has been in existence for a long time. And it's just not. Um, but how to apply it to you know your standard grain bin, mm-hmm. um, which is 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 more vertically difficult. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so um, I want to jump over to uh, Australia now because we have kind of touched on a bit of climate stuff as it applies to Canada. Can you speculate speculate on what's happening in Australia and and why? Where do the fires come from? Let's put it that way. Well, I think it's it's seems like the the reality is is fairly simple to understand there that they've had you know a few years of of 
unusually high drought. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, you know, I mean, the, the climate in Australia does go up and down like a yo-yo. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is like that. Yeah. Um, but it's been even more like that because of climate change, because of the, the effects on um, the ocean currents, you know, either side of Australia. There's, there's the El Nino effect, um, well, El Nino, La Nina effect on, in the Pacific, and there's a similar effect in, in the Indian Ocean, and it's mostly, I think, the one in the Indian Ocean that's, that's been affecting Australia. So it's just so, kind of the spot to get really hot like that. Yeah. A, a couple different so, things. Yeah, so they've had serious drought. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're now getting serious heat waves. Again, that's a, a climate change impact. You know, it's, it's record temperatures. Uh, it's temperatures that they have not seen in Australia, at least um, while records have been kept. Yeah. Um, so combine those two things. You just need somebody to drop a, a lighted cigarette mm-hmm. or a lightning strike or something, and you're going to burn a vast amount of forest very fast and you know when it's that pretty dry, terrifying right. as we're seeing at the moment when it's that dry you just can't you can't get ahead of it no you can't right um and we're seeing this more and more throughout the world you know we've seen um the fire season in california is steadily expanding mm-hmm. over the last several years uh we've been seeing you know more forest fires in brazil and Bolivia now that's that's partly a result of bad management mm. um, and you know government incentives to people who are destroying the forests in order to do their own you know in to, order to, to, plant. to uh, potentially port agriculture yeah. there and stuff. Yeah. Um, is there any is there any truth to the fact that uh, Burger King is, is never getting we're ne- we'll never get Burger King as a sponsor on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> but is there any is there any truth to the fact that Burger King is and the, and the companies behind Burger King are largely pushing for that. I don't know. Just, I don't know. I mean, it's you know, yeah. I'm I'm sure they would make use of make use of that beef. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what's what? So, how many fires are going on right now? There's Australia, which is the biggest. There's forest fires in Siberia. Yeah. Right now, uh, there was recently. Well, there's forest fire in the Amazon yes. right now. Yeah. Uh, you just said Bolivia. Yeah, well, I mean, again, that's that's sort of on the edge of the, the Amazon basin. Brazil and Bolivia. Yeah. And uh, we just had a, well, we had a pretty large set of forest fires in Alberta uh, in the last two, three, three years here in Canada. Yeah, I mean, there was there was the big one at Fort Mac. We, right. We had them in northern Saskatchewan in 2015. Right. And, you know, smoke came down as far as Saskatoon. Right. Um, they've been having them in BC for most most of the last, you know, the recent summers. Right, that's right. Uh, They've had them in Ontario, um, Portugal in the last few years. It's, you know, I mean, it's it's increased worldwide. There's, right. there's no doubt about that. that. That, yeah, that seems like a lot of evidence. I yeah. mean, there's got to be a point where people can't deny that anymore. Yeah. And, I mean, if you look at one particular place, you'll see that the numbers go up and down, up and down, up and down. And the trend right. is upwards, but... But it's it's erratic. Yeah. Uh, so, but then if you look worldwide, you realise, you know, yes, this is increasing. One general degree or two <coughs> yeah. general degrees yeah. in an in an area, in terms of climate, not weather, it's changing all the yeah. time. Yeah. Um, increases forest fire percentage. You know, yeah. there, there's something yeah. you can put against that twenty, thirty yeah. percent, yeah. depending on the region. 
Uh, that's actually something Richard Jack was telling me about. <laughs> but um, okay, so <clears throat> so Australia is just on fire as 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 per years of bad policy. So we're technically seeing, you know, something from 10, 15 years ago just coming to fruition now, like you were saying. Sure. Happening in yeah. Other... Well, I mean, it's cumulative. It's yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's not just 10, 15 years ago. It's it's the last century or so but especially the last 20 30 years and they're really close proximity to another or a few other heavy carbon producing countries uh, to uh, australia australia i mean among the developed world is it, yeah. it actually has the highest um emissions per capita right um in the world in you the know, world it's, it's higher than canada it's higher than the u.s is it higher than Saskatchewan? <laughs> no, no. I mean, <laughs> oh, that's only as so far as I can tell from from the figures I've seen, which okay. are not fully up to date. Uh, only Wyoming and North Dakota come higher than Saskatchewan. Wyoming and North Dakota. Yeah. I wonder what's driving that. Well, there's coal in Wyoming, and coal I mean they've Wyoming. got a tiny population. So, oh, yeah. okay. uh, North Dakota, I guess it's oil. It's um, oil in North Dakota. And, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Um, so. <clears throat> Will we see our first climate migrants coming from Austra- Australia? Like this is a, this is kind of something that, you know, climate scientists have been talking about for a long time. There will be areas of the Earth that become unlivable. Um, do you think, based on what you've seen, is is Australia going to become unlivable? As as per as in terms of our country, it's basically entirely on fire right now. It looks like. Well, can you reverse that? Can you get that back, or is that is that? It's going to be incredibly difficult to get that back because, yeah. I mean, the, the thing about carbon dioxide is it, it stays in the atmosphere, you know, average sort of effective retention period is about 100 years. And while it is there, it is, you know, continuing its, its greenhouse action. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other greenhouse gases, it's, it's not quite so fast. Right. Uh, you know, methane... It's only about you know it's 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 a much shorter period for for methane. It's about the same as uh, for um, nitrous oxide as is it for carbon dioxide. Um, so um, those are the three big ones. So that's just a hundred years retained in the Earth's atmosphere. Yes. Oh wow! I did yeah. not know that. You know, and while it is there, it is warming the Earth effectively. It's warming the Earth. Yeah, because um, that heat can't get out. So how could we put this in a metaphor that makes it? If you put your car in a garage started it and then just sat in it for an hour mm-hmm. and then you got, you got out of your car I imagine you'd pass out and, and die uh, is that is that relatable uh, and then in 100 years if the, depending on how tight we built the garages you know that, that carbon will, will slowly get out or sure. if, if it's tight yeah. enough it'll just yeah. never leave yeah. for 100 years yeah. so that's what's happening basically that's what's happening, it's yes. not just dissipating yeah. into space yeah. Yeah. Uh, as people might imagine, in a yeah. year or two, it's it's staying yeah. in the atmosphere, it's heating yeah. that, and it's making it unlivable. So even if we could go net zero carbon tomorrow, things are still going to get worse for the next maybe 10 years. Right. Um, after that, maybe things would get a bit easier. So if we but, went net zero carbon tomorrow, there would still be carbon in the atmosphere from yes. this period right yeah. now, yeah. in 50 years. Even. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, to get back to your question... I don't think um, tuned into that reality, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, mm. you know, I mean, we are genetically programmed to deal with the immediate crisis. You know, look, there's a tiger. Got to do something about it. Right. 
that goes back um, to travel well time. you don't think about the tiger that's coming in 10 years time mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so, right. but we do actually have the capacity to plan. You know, we do have big brains. Mm. So, you know, we need to actually be using those big brains <laughs> and not just using that, that primordial bit of them. Yes, there's uh, no tigers anymore. Mm? It's, it's generally easier to survive now. Yeah. There's no tigers anymore. Yeah. Mosquitoes aren't, aren't killing uh, most of us. Um, you know, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's time to look a little more, yeah. more forward. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, anyway, to get back to Australia, um, well, I mean, there's Australians who come here. I mean, yeah. if, if you've been to Whistler, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, well, but, they're coming to work at the hill, You know, I mean. <laughs> we already have climate migrants yeah. in Canada, and not from Australia, from a number of places. But, you know, if we think of what, how did the, the Syrian crisis happen? Um, there's a number of factors that went into it. You know, over four to five years at the beginning of what's now the last decade mm. um, in the Middle East, there was a record period of drought. Um, you know, certainly record in terms of the period that, that records have been consistently kept. So in the last 100, 150 years, yeah. we've had 10 years yeah. of drought that's kind of... Yeah. So, I mean, that affected lots of places other than Syria. The difference in Syria was that uh, the Assad government basically um, responded in a pretty negative way to, to what the farmers were telling them. They were saying, you know, basically, you know, sort it out yourselves. Um, keep growing, you know, essentially mine the soil. Mm. Um, and so, you know, chunks of Syria essentially became desert because people were doing what they needed to do in order to, to stay farming. That year. Which was to, yeah, 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 to use what few nutrients were left in the soil to grow stuff or to, mm-hmm. to grow animals or whatever they were doing. And so, I mean, that sort of combination of tyranny and incompetence um, in response to what's essentially a climate problem uh, resulted in massive reduction in Syria's capacity to grow its own food. Lots of people moving into the cities because they could no longer um, support themselves in the country. They now find themselves, you know, together with the city people, having difficulty obtaining food because mm-hmm. the country wasn't producing as much food any longer. The price of food went up. The city's starving also. Yeah, the city's starving also. Um, and and that's people start lobbying the government right. to say, look, do something about this. How does the government respond? It responds by violence right. against its own people. So that's kind of how it happened. And, of course, in the midst of that... Um, militant jihadi groups start moving in because they see an opportunity. Right, there's a power vacuum yeah. and, and you get factions of, yeah. of different groups. And you've got people who are unhappy with the current situation so sort of let's, let's put our alternative in there um, and you know, let's make use of their anger to, right. uh, to, to push our cause. So I mean that's basically what happened in Syria and so you know, those um, four million Syrian refugees in Turkey, million in, in Lebanon, million in Jordan, 
um, all those people who are internally displaced in, in Syria, um, they are in some sense climate refugees. Already, right, I see, just um, with, by a, you know, a couple of degrees of separation. Yeah. 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 yeah, and I mean, I'm not, you know, as I explained, you know, climate is not the only factor right. there. It's together with a whole series of other factors. Uh, so, you know, Syria is not the only place that's happened. You know, it's, it's a similar story to be told in Somalia, which Somalia. has been um, much more gradually, actually. I mean, Somalia has historically had droughts every decade or so. They've become more frequent. Um, and, I mean, that's, that actually extends across that sort of band of, of Africa. So, you know, southern Ethiopia, northern Kenya... Um, going into South Sudan, and to some extent places in West Africa as well, that um, the droughts have become South Africa more frequent. Well. And yeah, I mean, things have been happening in, in the southern parts of Africa as well. You know, Zambia and Zimbabwe have been yeah. having severe right. drought uh, the last couple of years. Um, that one is a little bit more difficult to to work out the, you know, the logical connections yeah. to climate change. Right. Um, with the you know the, the band around the equator, it's it's easier because there's a uh, a seasonal band of air that that travels across there. That you know if it, if it mm. drops in the wrong place, then the rain drops in the wrong place, and uh, so it's it's easier to see the scientific connections there. Almost anyone but, coming yeah. uh, from that that belt that you're saying that they all share that that climate belt is. Could be you could make the argument as a climate. Yeah, uh, yeah, migrants. absolutely. And I mean, there have been conflicts in northern Kenya, southern Ethiopia, for a long time. Right. You know, intertribal conflicts over resources, um, simply because those resources are becoming more scarce. Mm. Agricultural resources or, or grazing potential. The same's been happening in South Sudan, where, you know, I mean, for since time immemorial, we've had these tribes fighting each other for land. Um, but now there's less land, or there's, there's less that you can get out of the land. Right. Um, and, of course, they've got bigger weapons because countries in the West keep selling them weapons. Um, so things have, have, have got much more out of hand, and so we have vastly more refugees from South Sudan than there were a few years ago. Uh, so, you know, the whole thing is, is particularly difficult in that that part of the, the world. I think bef when we talk about climate refugees, we have to be very specific about the locality mm. because you know, the, the factors are different in different places. And it's much more of a rural thing um, with these sort of long-term issues of drought. And, and you know, people in the cities can, can generally keep going right. through a drought. Right. Um, but farmers, Can't. big problem. Right. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, in the initial years, people, you know, a couple of members of the family will leave, they'll go to the city, they'll maybe make a bit of money there, send it back home. At some point, it becomes more difficult. Um, and then the whole thing begins to break down. Mm. And, I mean, I, I fear that something of that sort is going to happen in South Asia in the next few years. You know, this last year, we've had both severe drought and um, severe heat waves 
in large chunks of India and India, Pakistan. Right. Um, and they share a border and also a river, and that river is increasingly depleted. Yeah. Which yeah. river is that? So... G-A-G-N-E-S? <laughs> the Ganges? It. Is that yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, the Ganges is... It's on the... Comes out on the east side of... Um, of India. Um, so actually, Bangladesh would be in, in the, the Delta area. Right. Of that. Uh, and then the Indus flows through Pakistan. But they both have their, the their source in the Himalaya, or Karakoram, that, that sort of belt of mountains. And that is a source um, of fresh water that theoretically, once it's gone, won't necessarily replenish itself in a warmer sure. climate. Yeah, and I mentioned one of the issues there is that you know, they're glacier-fed. Those glaciers are gradually melting away. Right. So, so there's a there's a big issue there. there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So your feeling is that the next set of the next wave of climate migrants, climate crisis migrants, could come from South Asia, India. That that sort of. I area. think there's certainly an issue there because you know that area does seem to be more vulnerable to the the heat wave effect mm-hmm. that has not been a big issues so far but which IPCC reports are saying you know we should expect this to be serious we should expect it to be really serious even at 1.5 degrees of warming certainly at two certainly at more than two and that's a that's a spot that has that region has 20 percent of the 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 world's population like uh, or, or so something like that something like, that. like a huge number yeah. is in that yeah. pocket that's I mean India's population is is pushing 1.5 million so 1.5 bi- billion. Billion. billion right okay and Pakistan and Bangladesh are about 200,000 each so that's two, sorry 200 million each yeah um, we're, can, we're using so, Canadian numbers <laughs> no we're trying to upscale them to, to. yeah <laughs> yeah um, yeah, so together, you know, it's a, a block Just sort of similar size to China yeah. in terms of population. Okay. And of course China's at risk too because a lot of southern China is fed from the same glaciers by rivers going the other way. And they have to go through... Well, they don't have to... Go. Oh yeah, they have to go through other countries that, that have... Uh... I'm well, going to keep those before they get there too. Those yeah, resources. yeah. I mean, it's to, it would be the Tibetan plateau mostly feeding the Chinese. Yeah, so that would be Tibet, yeah. Russia, Mongolia. Ah, uh, no. Yeah, no, there's no fights yeah. going to break out there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> so you know a lot about uh, Syria, uh, and and now you're working as you like you said your paid work is um, uh, in support of private refugee sponsorship. Uh, that's primarily Syrian migrants? In terms of the folks that we're bringing through MCC, um, a lot of them still are Syrians. And, I mean, there's still a big problem there, you know, with 4 yeah. million people in Turkey sort of without a, a permanent... In limbo. Yeah. Um, and another million in, in Lebanon, another million in... or nearly a million in Jordan, and others in Egypt and all over the place. Mm. Um so, I mean, that is enormous, but we also get large numbers of applicants from Somalia, from um, parts of southern Ethiopia, although things are get, have, getting easier in Ethiopia at the moment, from Eritrea, which is less of a climate issue. Uh, it's more about the oppressiveness of the government there. Um, some from South Sudan, um, some f- from... 
Democratic Republic of the Congo, which has, again, that's not really so much a climate issue. It's, it's more a matter of resource wars mm-hmm. among different tribes and different interest groups there. Um, so some of those are climate-related, some of them aren't. Right. Um, and, you know, we don't discriminate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, but the, the certainly, Congo, yeah. The Congo has had a really, really rough go. I mean, uh, that started with the Belgian king, Leopold, started... Yeah. He started yeah. harvesting rubber plants there, right? Yeah. In the Congo. Yeah. And it's never really stabilized since. That, that was, what, 150 years ago or something? Sure, it was, yeah, it was and the end of the 19th century. So, he was a yeah. really horrific, horrific, I guess you could say slave owner. Um, yeah. He, he started yeah. the whole cutting off the hand thing and, and preserving bullets thing and everything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, the Congo has, has just been a, a series of civil wars and different factions trying to take it over and it's really never had a had had 20 years of peace i guess i don't think it's had i don't know i mean certainly in the last 30 years it's been near constant warfare constant. somewhere yeah yeah i mean it's a vast country but do you find um, most but, of the people from drc have some french abilities do most congo uh migrants have french french capabilities yeah yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's the predominant language there. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's. Um, Have you picked up anything pe- to help you? <laughs> Sorry, one at a time. I yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I speak a little bit of French, but you do okay. Yeah, um, but the yeah the folks in the west of the country speak mostly Lingala, which is you know the native language. Okay. Um, in the east of the country, it would be um, Swahili. Swahili. In the north, it's another language I'll have forget the name of. Okay. Um, and, you know, the educated people will speak French. Okay. Some of the educated people will speak English. Um, so, yeah. So that's, that's, that's um, what do they call that? That's like, what, uh, I guess, a prerequisite in their favor that helps. They speak a, yeah, yeah, yeah an official yeah. language, yeah. Um, which, which certainly helps. Although, yeah. you know, we do make sure that people get language teaching when they arrive here so it's it's not absolutely necessary that they're fluent before they come mm-hmm. and most people aren't right right you have ways around that yeah. and, and it's not been a hindrance yeah it's yeah. no it's, it's not a hindrance i mean where it becomes difficult is, is when we have family members here who don't have very good english and whose french is so-so. So-so, and my French is so-so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then, you know, actually getting the story takes a bit of time. But... Do you use Google Translate or anything? Uh, we do, actually. Yeah. I mean, certainly, I mean, I've used it a lot with the Syrians. Yeah. Because, I mean, I've got no Arabic. Okay. Uh, yeah. So. So that, that, that's something you pretty much rely yeah. on. Yeah. More yeah. Right. right. Um, okay, so, so could you tell me, um, describe one or two common misconceptions uh, that uh, Canadians or more, moreover Western Canadians hold when it comes to immigrants or some something you know that you want to dispel or something you want to get off your chest that you know it's just wrong that, that, that people think that is there anything that comes to mind yeah well I think I think the attitudes to certainly to our refugees are mixed um, in this province you know I've I have folks that I 
have spent time with who have not experienced any racism at all, mm. which is wonderful yeah. and, and you know something to be proud of. Yeah. There are others who are very aware, and I mean actually some of those who haven't experienced racism themselves um, are very aware that that some of their fellow Somalis, fellow Syrians, fellow whoever. Uh, have been experiencing it mm. and it seems to be a matter of you know if you get educated then you have a much better chance of getting to a place where you don't have to face that mm. um, but I think you know, certainly in some of the communities there is a fairly ingrained racism um, and do, do, I'm do, 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 really not sure how to address that. I mean, there's there's a certain sort of white nativism, which is yeah, it seems just totally ironic to me that people are saying that you know, if they come here, they they need to adopt our customs. Well, you know, did the white people who first came here adopt the customs of, of the First Nations? No, they didn't. No. no. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and that's exactly so, what I'm driving at here is um, um, there seems to be a lot of that indifference even. Uh, I mean, people forget, or I mean, maybe have never taken the time to, to sink into it and close their eyes and think about what it would be like to be a, a refugee coming mm-hmm. from a war-torn country, right? Yeah. And, and to yeah. have done nothing wrong besides be born right? yeah. and want yeah. survival as yeah. their only goal. Mm-hmm. Why would we feel indifferent to someone like that? Why would we be angry about them getting a chance yeah. in a country yeah. that can Quite. very easily Quite. absorb them. Yeah. And I mean, I think we see fear of Muslims. Um, and, you know, Muslims come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and, and ideologies and lack of ideology and, right. you know, styles of, of religious belief. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just tar them all with the same brush. Right. There are a few who you know, we know are dangerous. Um, But the vast, vast, vast majority have, you know, I see no difference in their approach to life, their um, aspirations from anybody else in Canada. But people don't make the, the the people don't disconnect that all the time. They don't disconnect Muslim from extremist. In your, your yeah, and I mean they've been fed that through media, through social media, through you know all sorts of places. Right. Um, so it's 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 not as bad here as it is mm-hmm. in some places. Uh, but there are places here where it is bad, um, and. You know, I mean, we have to combat that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that we do, I mean, we're not reaching out into the general population as a whole yet, but one of the things that we do with, with some of the, the schools um, is we have a, a sort of simulation process where people go through a, a rather sim- yeah, a rather simplified model of what it's like to be a refugee. So they, you know, they're, mm. they're told at, at the first station, look, you know, Almost your like crops have failed for the last three years. Um, Almost like an empathy conflict training. in your, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And so, you know, they get to, to see some of the things that, that refugees go through, you know, without, obviously without us uh, committing physical violence and, or and <laughs> sexual abuse or like any of yeah. those things. Yeah. Um, but they can imagine how much worse it really is as they go through that process. Uh, so we do that. And, I mean, we also have a, a, a series of videos that... Um, show what it's like to sponsor refugees um, and the generally positive experience that people have had in, in forming these groups to, to sponsor refugees and, and you know, building those friendships and, and, um, and it becoming a, a mutual learning thing and not just a sort of, hey, Pat, Pat, you know, we, <laughs> right. poor little refugee, we look after you. It's... it's you know, these are resilient people who have a lot to teach us. So do similar Mennonite um, churches or Mennonite uh, committees have programs like that, or is that exclusive to Saskatoon? MCC um, has five offices across the country, and each of them has a, a refugee court, you know, mission, okay. what, what I call myself, migration and resettlement coordinator is my job, and, and I have equivalents in all, in all the other offices. Um, so we don't operate fully in Quebec or in Atlantic Canada, um, but we operate across the rest of the, the provinces. Okay. So um, there are, I mean, if a, if a uh, school division wanted something like that, access to something like that, there's a, probably a place, aside from in Quebec, where they could get oh, absolutely. that sort of thing absolutely. through their program. Absolutely, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, we'll make sure to put a shout out. Actually, you know what, do you have a contact in case people want it, or do you, would you rather not... Uh, in case there's anyone that listens to this that might want to reach out to you on something like that? Well, I think, or yeah, I, mean, I think if, if people want to email me um, at my MCC address, that's... Or do you have a Twitter or something? Um, not at the moment. No? Not okay. at the moment. Yeah, no problem. But I just thought can, uh, give you yeah. that opportunity to reach yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. So it's markbiglandpritchard at mccsk.ca. Markbiglandpritchard at mcc sk.ca is there any yeah. hyphens or anything in there no no hyphens on so m-a-r-k yeah. actually you should spell it yeah <laughs> m-a-r-k b-i-g-l-a-n-d p-r-i-t-c-h-a-r-d at mccsk.ca great thanks um okay so is there anything else any other any other misconceptions that you think uh like uh, you you mentioned obviously that the muslim fear is very unwarranted uh, in most cases, you said 99% yeah. of cases. Uh, is there anything else that comes to mind? Well, I think, I mean, there, there's an impression that some people have, I think, that um, these people are, you know, leeches on the community and, you know, they're, they're just here to, to get the benefits. And um, there's going to be a few like that, probably, but it's... There's a few my, that are just born in this country like that. Eh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, my experience is that the vast majority of refugees are, are eager to rush out and get work yeah. and contribute to the economy and, and yeah. um, really probably too early, probably, you know, before they've learned enough English to, to actually get better work. Mm. Um, I see. So... You know, these are highly motivated people. Right. They've managed to survive in all sorts of difficult mm -hmm. circumstances. They've got skills that um, are, you know, phenomenal. Yeah. Um, 
and they have a lot to offer to, to this country. Yeah. So there's a Louis C.K. joke there. Uh, not that he's casting the best light these days, but he says, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if um, an immigrant comes to your country and, and, and with no skills, with no money, and no contacts and takes your job, well, maybe you're just shit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought that's kind of funny. I mean, you hear it a lot. It's like, oh, immigrants take jobs, but then you also hear, oh, well, immigrants are all, always working the subway and then the 7-Eleven and, like, and, and it's just like, uh, and then you also hear, well, they, they don't work and they're leeches. And it's, it's like, what's your argument? It's one or the other. Yeah. They're, like you say, yeah, they're, they're leeches or they're working way harder than the rest of us. Yeah. And they're, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And they're visible because yeah. they're at their jobs. Um, uh, really interesting point. Uh, I think you, I think you made, made a good point with both of those. Um, so is there any, and we kind of got there with your email, but is there any, anything that, um, we can do even citizens of Saskatchewan or even citizens of Canada, Alberta, Manitoba, we can do to help your efforts or help the efforts of the MCC, uh, that you can think of? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, from MCC, we're always looking for new groups to, to take on sponsorships. To take on sponsorships. Yeah. So then that means having someone stay. That means um, a group of... I mean, the number of people in the group will depend on the number of people you're trying to bring. Yeah. Um, so it could be anything from about three people to, say, 15 people in a group. Um, supporting anything from you know an individual to a family of 11. Uh, I see how <laughs> Coming to Canada to... And so making sure that... Um, they have all the all the basic things in place, you know, things like PR cards, things like doctors, um, right. things like sort of schooling for the kids and so on. Um, but more important that enabling them to become autonomous and sort of functional within this society right. without losing their identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's a year long process that kind of onboarding someone in yeah. that way, in that fashion. Yeah. Do so, you find you get a lot of response from churches? Yeah, or I mean... is there a particular type of group that... We've know. traditionally worked a lot with the churches. Yeah. I mean, I've been in this job for just for a year and a bit, but, oh, right. um, but some of my predecessors worked almost, you know, until the Syrian rush a few years ago, uh, my predecessors were working pretty well exclusively with Mennonite churches. And I mean, Mennonites have been um, wanting to do this stuff because so many of their own family arrived here as refugees mm. in in the twenties or before that. Right. Um, and so it's it's just part of part of the culture there. But other groups have picked it up um, in the last several years. And I mean, certainly you know the Catholics do a lot. The the Anglicans do a lot. There's mm. and. Now we've been seeing all sorts of other groups that have no particular faith commitment doing a lot. Oh, um, yeah. oh really? Yeah. That's, that's really cool to hear. Yeah. Um, so, and we're, we're prepared to work with any of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Catholics tend to work with the, with the Catholic office and the Anglicans tend to work with the Anglican office. Um, and other churches have a national office that they will typically work with. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, we've we've worked uh, over the last few years with people from a great variety of churches, but also people, you know, ad hoc groups have been put together by people who see there is a need here, we really want to help. Um, how do we do it? Right. And so we help, we help them through the process. 
but also with family members of you know people who are refugees at the moment um, who have managed to get themselves you know sufficiently stable in this country to be able to to take on the financial burden um, and to do the the resettlement work um, you mean family members of the migrants or family yeah, members of yeah. right I yeah. see so you know, it's 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 a very diverse group of people that we work with, and I like it that way. Okay, and so that for everyone listening is Mark Bigland Pritchard at mccsk.ca. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. And and so that's how you guys can yeah. reach out if you want to, or if you want to put a uh, a crew of people together, uh, even if you're not in Saskatchewan, um, he can he can set you up with the right mm-hmm. people. Yeah. Um, so. Is there anything else you want to say while well, we have a moment here with uh, hopefully more than just you and I listening? Um, yeah. Anything else you want to touch on? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, that, that's, you know, the bulk of my work with MCC is, is yeah. actually enabling those groups. But one of the things that I am working on this year is, is trying to understand more about that link between climate change and displacement um, with a view to probably putting together a, a, some sort of a simulation exercise that that will enable people to understand you know, the root causes of displacement right. and how they relate to what we are doing here. Right. So, I mean, climate change is a big one of those things. Another thing is, is the, the impact of Canadian mining companies that, you know, move in, take people's land or pollute their land. What do they do? They need to move. Mm. Um, so, certainly in terms of, of that climate piece, I think... Um, understanding those those connections, I think, is is important um, for anyone who really cares about those displaced people who are going through suffering. You know, why are they suffering? It's partly because we in Saskatchewan are chucking out per capita was it sixty seven tons per person per year of carbon of greenhouse gases which is part uh, of the reason Canada yeah. hasn't met the Paris climate accord yeah <laughs> yeah um, so we do need to address that um, and so that's kind of your pet yeah. project is, is how, yeah. how climate change and, and displacement are, are related yeah right. yeah absolutely and I mean it's it, you know as I say not all displacement is climate related but a lot more of it will be in the future uh, whether that's in East Africa, whether it's in, in Central America, whether it's in um, the Pacific, it's, you know, there's, there, there's all sorts of places where that's, that's going to be more and more of the issue. And connected with that, um, I think, you know, it's important that we reduce our emissions. It's vitally important we reduce our emissions. Um, but it's also important that we enable those countries that are most affected to do three things. To develop their economies without going the fossil fuel route. So to enable them to go straight to renewables mm-hmm. as a means of, of energy provision. Right. Um, to... And that's actually the promise. Yeah. I should just go into that for a yeah. moment. Is, um, you know, a lot of people try to make the argument, well, Canada or is not the problem when it comes to climate change. You know, India and China need to address their emissions first. 
Well, it's partly a commitment, you know, a, a multinational commitment. Yeah. And so yeah. if you're willing to, to implement a carbon tax or to do take actions to uh, slow, reduce, prevent climate change, that means you're, you're willing to take an, a, a hit fiscally, economically. Yeah. And it's hard for, you know, countries like China and India that haven't had the same heavy polluting years to develop that, that we had in Western Canada, uh, rather in, in, in the West, you know, U.S. and Canada and, and a lot of Western Europe, um, they didn't get those same years. They weren't afforded those same years and they didn't get to pollute while they built their economy. So the, the argument from the West has always been, well, we will transplant that economy, that, that technology yeah. and we'll yeah. transplant that, yeah. uh, that knowledge and, and that way you guys can get to it. Well, we haven't seen that happen, not on a large scale. And so it's hard for these countries to say, well, we can't just shut down all our coal plants. Like this is our this yeah. is our thing, you know. And I mean, there are there are ways in which China and India are actually doing better than us, right? And you and know, China banned plastic bags ten years ago or yeah. something like that. Yeah, but you know, I mean, they are leading the world in in producing photovoltaics, you know, for solar power. Um, they've got a massive wind power industry, right? Um, they do have a lot of coal. Mm-hmm. plants um, but they've been s- certainly slowing that down and they do have a, a commitment for 2030 which is probably not strong enough but mm-hmm. um, it's it's getting there and India is, is moving much more towards renewables right. as well and that's partly because actually it's it's cheaper to install solar power than to build coal-fired power stations now in, especially in these countries eh? yeah <laughs> But, uh, but, you know, then when you look at a place like Ethiopia, which um, a very poor country of, you know, 100 million people um, in really quite poor land, uh, you know, difficult land to, to grow stuff on because it's, it's so mountainous, um, they actually have a plan for 2030, which means that they do not go to fossil fuels at all. In essence, yeah, most of their power at the moment is, is hydroelectric. Um, so that's that process I just described yeah. in action almost, yeah. what's happening in Ethiopia. Yeah, but they're going much more solar, a certain amount of wind. Um, so, and, you know, looking very seriously at, at, at rural development that's um, in conjunction with some really very competent uh, consultants from North America and from Europe. Are you one so, of them? No. <laughs> I wish I, really I was. I'd love to go back out there. Some but, of the best. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, there, there, there are positive things happening. That's good. I, I uh, really but like we need that, to no. make more positive things happen. Yeah. So, I mean, the, that, so that was the first thing, was, was the um, enabling that development to happen through renewables rather than fossil fuels. Right. The second thing is um, what the um, UNFCCC calls uh, loss and damage. It's basically giving them compensation for the damage that we have done as a result of climate change. Hmm. And it's a difficult one in those international fora because we don't like paying. We don't like paying for the damage that we've done right uh, and who, who who pays that right like i mean it's really hard to get exxon mobile to pay their own taxes never mind to show sure. yeah. Um, yeah damage fees to uh, the other problem yeah. i can already see that happens because it happens in every other way money money's allocated is 
it doesn't always get to the rest of the country, you know, sure. you stick with the, sure. the 10, 15 people uh, that run the country in yeah. the same and, family and, and enrich yeah. them and yeah. it doesn't make it to any And that program. is, yeah, I mean, that is a serious problem and I would love to see that done mostly through um, charitable agencies, mm-hmm. which, you know, know the, the, the reality on the ground in the place that most need it. Right. It's not always an easy thing to do, but I, I mean that's that's how I would like it primarily to be done. Yeah. But then the third thing is is adaptation, which we all need to do. You know, we're all going to have to adapt to um, a much more unpredictable climate, um, simply because of where we've got to and and you know, all that stuff that's still in the pipeline. Um, but it's going to be a lot more difficult for those vulnerable populations. You know whether it's people on the coast in in Bangladesh or um, farmers in Ethiopia or whoever it is, right. um, simply because they don't have the resources to cope that that we have. Right. And so, it's really important that we assist them with with that. Right. Um, so the um, Climate Action Network in Canada actually came out with. A proposal for you know what is Canada's climate fair share to keep global warming down to one point five degrees C. What they find, and what they suggest is that compared to our twenty o five emissions, we should actually be. Now this isn't going to sound right, but stay with me. Uh, we should reduce our emissions compared to 2005, by 140% by 2030. Now, the way to do that is we reduce our actual emissions by 60%, and then the other 80% comes from enabling countries in the global south to reduce their emissions. So we actually send them about $4 billion a year, maybe increasing from that, (coughs) to enable them to do what is needed to develop their economies while also reducing their emissions. So this is the this is that transfer you're talking about. Yeah. That we were, right, yeah. That's that eighty or that eighty yeah. percent. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I mean So now we're in two thousand nineteen and where are we with that goal? We're hardly anywhere. Um, I mean Canada's has committed Graham. I think it's half a billion to a general fund. Um, have we actually paid it? No, but we've committed it. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, I'm sure along with every other country who's made a similar commitment and not put anything yeah, in. And I'm yeah. sure some like the US have yeah. revoked those commitments yeah. at this point. And I mean, Norway's put a bit more in, but I don't think anybody else has. Nobody else has put into this general fund. Well, maybe small amounts. Maybe I, small I, I'm, amounts. I'm, yeah. 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 Okay. But that's the sort of fund that will uh, fund a program like what you're seeing in Ethiopia. Yes. Okay, yeah. I see. Yeah. And where do you... And I mean, a lot of this stuff can be done actually quite cheaply. Right. But... <laughs> but it's the powers that be that are, are really grinding against yeah. it. I mean, you yeah. hear about Scotland producing enough wind power to power a country its size yeah. uh, for, t- for, for two years. Um why is that not part of the conversation now where, where people are saying all oh, that that people are still saying that technology is so far away 
It's not, is it? It's not, no. And I mean... So that's just a, it's just a misnomer. The it's European mis- conversation is very different. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think probably the conversation <laughs> okay. in BC or Quebec is very different. Right, I see. Uh, yeah, that's also um, context, huh? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's... it's you know, the, the green energy revolution started in Europe, well, in Denmark specifically, in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people have got a lot more used to the ideas there. Right. They're also, you know, most European countries, there is not big oil interests right. holding people back. In Poland, there's big coal interests holding people back. In Germany, there have been big coal interests, but they seem to be subsiding now. Hmm. Um, That's a phenomena that only seems to happen when you sit on a lot of oil reserves. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, here our media have been, you know, who do they listen to? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's depends a... Depends what province you're in. I it guess. depends on the province yeah, yeah. you're in. Right. It's, you know, if you listen to... Um, CBC Radio in BC, it's very different from Alberta or Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, there's a CBC reporter in, in one province, I won't say where, but it's not this one, okay. uh, <laughs> who seems to get all his facts from oil industry mm. bodies. Um, you know, if that's happening with CBC, just think what's happening with the print media which is, you know, corporate-owned and, and right. has shares in... Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I, I so. think that we're still at a point where so much of our day-to-day life in the West, in Western Canada, is tied to oil, and, and it's, there's, a, there's a real slow, real long change. Yeah. I think it's happening, though. I yeah. think it's starting to happen. Like you say, it started in the early 80s in Europe. I would say that it's 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 kind of taken hold more in ten years in the last ten years uh, in, in Canada. Yeah. Than, than yeah. So maybe in Canada there, as a whole Europe was in the early eighties. Mm. But it is going to be a difficult transition right. for Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, you know, people don't like change. Right. And change has got to happen um, because you know change is going to happen. You know, either we we actually get our transform our economy and get ahead of it and get ahead of it or we suffer we drag our, our along with everybody suffer. else right um so it's it's got to happen mm-hmm. but people aren't going to like it and we need to be able to present them with with serious alternatives um that actually you know it's a just transition mm-hmm. that, that that people actually have decent jobs at the end of it they have purpose they have meaning they have um, the ability to to support their family, they have community life, and we can actually make it better. I think even now, um, maybe people won't be wealthier, but we can offer a better quality of life if we can get this transition right. Well, there's a good argument that the green revolution actually is a job creator, and it's something yes. that people need yeah. to reset in their minds when they think. Um, you know, things like uh, NDP or even Green Party, they think that's anti-business. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I think that when you retrofit large buildings with better performing, uh, you know, roof, better, better performing uh, uh, windows, better performing, um, you know, exterior structure, insulation, that sort of thing, I think that employs, 
you know, tradespeople, it employs electricians, oh, retrofitting those buildings. Absolutely. It's not always about growth. We can make the systems that we have better. And I think that that's yeah. what AOC and Bernie Sanders' Green New Deal explains. I think yeah. that that's what Elizabeth yeah. May's um, climate action pr- pr- program was, was trying to explain yeah. was that yeah. these are not job killers. I mean, um, these are job creators. And that, yeah. that point needs to be driven home. <clears throat> and actually building people's skills and giving them real pride in the job. Right. Because right. it's it's... You know, those jobs need to be taken seriously. It's not mm-hmm. just a, a thing that you fill in, do to fill in with until you can get a, you know, a better job somewhere. It's, it's, it can be a, a genuine profession, uh, which is, I think, part of the reason why things have worked in Germany is because there's still those, the, the professional pride in the trades. Um, there's, it's not quite so strong here. Hmm. Um, well, that being said, where can people get uh, on board with climate justice... Saskatoon if they wanted to. Um, Google us. Google us. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's the best one. Okay, yeah. Climate Justice Saskatoon. Anyone interested in that, you can find it there. Um, we, we mentioned Mark's email a couple times. Um, Mark, I really want to thank you for coming by. Uh, well, thank you, Ryan. 